This is Life of an Architect, a podcast dedicated to all things architecture with a little bit of life thrown in for balance. In the course of performing their duties, architects have their own unique equipment and they vary as wildly as different types of jobs architects perform. Today, we will be going big picture on you and discussing some of the most important tools of an architect. Hi everyone, I'm Bob Borson. And I'm Andrew Hawkins. And today, we are talking about tools. Alright, Andrew, you ready to get this tool party started? Oh yeah, bring on the tools. <laughs> As part of my preparation, I have taken a little bit of liberties and written out my list of items, and I think we should start with the workhorse on my list, the computer. Computers have changed a lot since I got into the game. When I graduated from college in 1992, only the largest of firms were using computers. You know, this was the year 1418. There wasn't parametric architecture, just abacus architecture. It was all being etched on stone tablets. That's right. If I remember correctly from my history lessons. Yeah, no, because you were there. I was not that far behind. Yeah, there was always the joke that my first architectural drawings were carved on stone tablet, and you could only erase once by flipping the tablet over. Over. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So let's start with computers. I know that you build your own computers, mostly because I've called you on this a few times just to kind of ask you what kind of systems you use and how much horsepower you put on the systems you build. So let's start there. Let's talk about the computers you build and why you build them. Well, you know, originally I started out building computers because I couldn't get what I wanted from a computer manufacturer that met the specs that I needed to run the software that we wanted in the office. I started that process by getting the exact specifications that I needed for the computers I wanted in my office. And so there was some economy in that as well, because I could get things that would meet the specs, but it had other things that I didn't need. You know, when you upgrade a computer, typically, at least back early on when I started building, you couldn't upgrade single parts. It was like the whole thing or nothing. And so I ended up with a lot of extraneous fluff that I didn't care for. Right. So I just started building my own machines because I could get the hard drive space I needed. I could get the RAM I needed and I could get the video card that I needed. And the rest of it was not really overly important. So how many computers do you think you've built? I've been building computers for probably almost 10 years. And I bet I've probably built about 20, 20 machines maybe in those 10 years. That's a lot. I built two office servers in that time period, which are a little bit different to do as well. But I enjoy the process. As an architect, it's kind of like a puzzle for me to do. And I like to put those things together. And nowadays, it's almost just plug and play. I can put one together pretty quick. When I called you on this a few years ago, because we were going through the same process and we were having problems finding kind of the computers that we wanted. Now, I don't think that's really an issue because gaming is such a big deal that now all these gaming computers, even gaming for laptops, where you can get these giant hard drives and huge video cards. And it's not as hard to find the equipment that we used to. But I will say for people, because they ask a lot, I'm about to go to school. What size computer should I get? My generic answer is get the biggest one you can afford. To put a little bit more specificity to it, the kind of the go-to video card in our computers now when we build them are 8 gig video cards. The one we specifically like is the NVIDIA Quadro. We also make sure that we have at least 32 gigabytes of memory in every single computer. That's kind of the standard. Yeah, lots of RAM and heavy-duty video card to be able to run the software. I mean, you can run it with less, but typically it's just slow and kind of glitchy. You know, back when I started building things, you couldn't get but like 8 gigs of RAM and something. We were putting in 16 or 24 five or six years ago, bumping it up a lot. But nowadays, yeah, with the gaming, you're correct that the computers are out there. My other concern, when you buy a computer from someone, a manufacturer, and it's already all pre-done, there's a lot of preloaded software on it that I don't like either. Yeah, totally. That's the other reason why I still 
tend to build my own machines and there's still some economy to it, right? I mean, I can build one with the specs that I want for probably still a little less than I could purchase one that was pre-manufactured by somebody, HP or Dell or whoever. Sure. And then I don't get all the additional bloatware of... (laughs) (laughs) monitoring this or monitoring that that i don't really care about it's always the antivirus the spyware stuff that seems to come and yeah i think it's a good thing they're like oh we're gonna put it on your machine even though you didn't ask for it yeah and we're gonna give you three months of free monitoring but then you got to pay for it and i was like i don't want it on there ever if you delete it or you don't pay for it then it pops up once a month hey you should pay for the subscription to the blah 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 right you can't seem to get rid of it right we bought a few laptops even which i've never built a laptop but we bought a few of those and actually just scrubbed the whole thing like rebooted installed the software because we didn't like that stuff so we just deleted the whole hard drive and started over that's not a bad idea we're a small firm and so the end of the year comes up more like well, we don't want to pay taxes on this money twice so we kind of leave one month's kind of bag of money in the bank and the rest of it goes for nice things like bonus and parties and stuff like that but it's also the opportunity for us to say okay everybody gets new monitors because now we can hang them off the wall and these three people need new computers and one of the things that we bought that i'm super super jacked about was we did buy a laptop we have two other ones in the office that weigh like 40 pounds each and they're giant and they're terrible but the reason we got a brand new laptop that is totally built out is because i just bought the htc vive pro vr system nice nice i'm really excited i had a client who had this at his house and we're doing a project for him and he learned that he can use our revit model and without any additional steps put his system in there and he can walk around the building that we did for him and it was this really amazing tool you know the way these systems are set up is you got the headphones and one of the things we bought was this wireless adapter piece that kind of mounts permanently to the headset, which means I don't have to have cords and cables attached to me. So you're not plugged into the matrix while you're trying to VR everything. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I'm plugged into the matrix wirelessly, which... With no cords. That's right. So I'm more the, you know, if I could remember the guy's name, it'd be a lot lot funnier. (laughs) You're like Neo. Once he was out, Neo. That's right. Then he could pop back in. Or you could be Morpheus. I don't know which one you want to be. I'm like either of those two guys. Either of those two guys. Yeah, that's it. You could come and go as you want without the wires. That's right. I don't need that. I just need the headset. That's right. So we got it. We got the laptop. So that way we can be portable. I can take it on the road. I can take it to clients' houses. You know, I can bring it wherever I want. And with very little effort, because one of the things that happened, and this was a game changer for me, and this may sound stupid, but... You know, we're used to when we draw on computers and we're looking at monitors, I'm used to spinning the building around as I look at the monitor. So if I want to do like a video or I want to rotate it around to show something that's on the east side, we're on the north side currently, I pivot the model around. Well, when you're trying to export out images, if you go beyond the 60 degree cone of vision on the screen, everything starts to get wildly distorted. Yeah, it gets really wonky. Your verticals aren't vertical anymore. The angles get really weird. (laughs) They get really jacked up. So, but when you put on the VR system and you put yourself in the system, now the building doesn't move. You move within the building. And because the way your eyes work, all the verticals that aren't vertical on the screen, they're all perfectly perpendicular to the earth now. Yeah, they still stay vertical. Yeah, and it's the craziest difference. And you actually can get the sense of space. This particular project that we were working on, it's a husband and wife. There's a bunch of other people involved, but the people who had the the old VR system that we used that was theirs, we had a conversation about this shelf that we're putting in. And his wife is a diminutive person. It's a shared co-working space. And we have this open shelf where all the mugs and plates and stuff will go because we don't want people opening cabinets to try to figure out where stuff is. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. So we want it all on display, but they've got this gigantic, super amazing Italian coffee making machine. One of those $8,000 coffee pot? Yeah. 
That's exactly right. And they want it in a certain spot. And I go, well, it's going to raise this shelf up as we pass the glasses and all the plates above it. And I'm not sure you can reach it. So what do we do? Boop, pop on the goggles. She can, in real space, walk up to it, reach up and go, yeah, you're right. It's too tall now. I couldn't get a cup off the shelf. And that changed everything. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I got to have it. Got to have it. Of course. You started like needing a fix, right? You were kind of shaking and be like, I got to get it. I got to get it. How long ago was that? I'm surprised you waited so long. Well, yeah, I've been jonesing since about March to get it. But right when I went to order it back in March, they kind of made an announcement that the pro version was going to come out and the ocular display was going to be about 100% better than what it currently was. I was like, I'm not going to buy this one if it's about to get 2x better. Yeah, for sure. So we've just been sitting on it. And the funny thing is, is so Michael, my business partner, I went in and I said, I really want this and he goes all right if you want to get it and so i said sweet and i'm literally like skipping out you know back to my desk to get it (laughs) he kind of sticks his head out a little while later and he goes hey on that vr system we can get it because you say that it's important and we need it but if we don't use it i'm gonna be really mad (laughs) (laughs) i'm gonna actually take it out of your check if we don't use it i know he's gonna make me pay for it with a pound of flesh So I love those, but we kind of talked about some equipment, like computers and laptops and these goggles, which are cool. I think that maybe we ought to jump onto software a little bit, because while the computers are the workhorse, this software is what we interface with the most in our office. So I know I'm on Revit, and I know that you're on Revit. I personally don't have any major complaints against the software that we use. Everyone in my office is, they're really good at it. They love it. If I even suggest it making a change to something else, they think I might as well be saying, hey, put your computers away. We're going to pull out crayons and paper and do it the old way yeah for sure i bet they think it's stupid and i think this is where i want this bit of the conversation to go because there's another platform that i'm kind of envious of and it's archicad the reason why at times i wish we were on archicad was that it's all the small firms all the kind of high-end small design firms Revit's expensive and Archicad's I think a little bit more friendly from a cost standpoint but it lets you do a lot more customizations to it and the graphic output like straight out of the box graphics that you can push out from Archicad in my opinion are wildly superior to what we can get from Revit but the reason why we're on Revit is because we do a fair amount of commercial work as well and none of our consultants use Archicad none it's all Revit that's the big fish is Revit Yeah, none of my consultants use anything other than Revit if they use Revit. Some of my consultants still use AutoCAD, which drives me nuts. We end up having to import their stuff and redraw it in Revit because we want everything to be three-dimensional. No engineer, I think, uses ArchiCAD. I think it's one of those things that ArchiCAD was developed a while back for Mac before Revit was available. In the early 90s, early 2000s, if you were a creative person, right, you were using Mac because PCs kind of suck. That was the sort of (laughs) mentality. If you were doing creative stuff, you had a Mac. And if you were doing boring corporate stuff, you had a PC. And ArchiCAD came in into the Mac environment and really thrived there. But I agree that it has some nice output. Those people that use ArchiCAD are diehard. (laughs) They're getting really serious arguments about how much better it is than anything else. That is true because I went to a SketchUp base camp they have. It was not what I expected. It all and it turned out to be a really kind of amazing experience because, yeah, I want to go to that by the way. I went to it, they had me actually lecture, and I just said, Well, can I take some classes? I want to be there because what they wanted me to do more than just speak, they wanted me to engage outside of my lecture that I gave. I didn't know what to expect from user groups and the diversity of people I use. Like, architects were probably the majority, but it was not like 90%, it might have been the majority at 35%. Oh, wow! And you had set designers, there were people there that were crime scene recreationists 
Oh, that's cool. The stuff that they use Sketchup for, it was it was profound, and it was so it's not what I expected. And I really enjoyed it. But as I'm sitting around talking to this really diverse group of people, you know, and the architects kind of find each other every now and then, and we had conversations about Revit versus Archicad. And the thing that the people who are fans of Archicad, they will defend it passionately on how amazing it is. The Revit people, they like it, but they complain about it. Archicad people, they never complain about Archicad. The Revit people, that's their favorite activity to do <laughs> is to complain about Revit. Exactly. There's so many problems with it. But none of them will change. No, I don't know that I would either. Granted, I've learned a lot. I've been working in Revit since like 2009. So it's been a long time for my office and we do everything in Revit. It doesn't matter the size of the project, but I've learned a lot in those years of how to manipulate it to do the things I want. And I feel like that's the bigger step between the two. I agree with you. The visual output is a lot more dynamic from ARCHICAD, but from what I understand, because I've never used it, but it seems a lot more intuitive to an architect, whereas Revit seems a lot more engineering-based. Yeah. I think that that may be part of the reason for the passion. If people are listening and they're thinking, well, what kind of software do I, like, what tools do I need? What's the corollary here? You know, other than BIM software like Revit or ARCHICAD, which really is the direction the whole industry is in. And I, I look at people who, if you're not on at least some sort of BIM software, you need to get on it because we're beyond that point at this stage in the game. Oh, yeah, I agree. The other software that we have in our office that I think if somebody said, what's the bare minimum I need to get right out of the gate? What do I need? I'd say you got to get some kind of BIM software. That's for sure. But the other software that we use with a lot of regularity, and we have things like SketchUp, which I use. I'm the only one in the office who uses it. And I really like it. We had Rhino for a while when we were trying to do some parametric stuff, but we don't really use Rhino at all. But we use Photoshop all the time. I use InDesign probably weekly. Because I use it to do my presentations, which is because of you. You're the one that turned me on to <laughs> yeah. using InDesign for presentations. Yeah, I use InDesign for almost everything that we do. It's essentially, it's my word. Because we really don't make a lot of documents in the office that have text only. They're always text yeah. and images together and those kind of things. They have some graphic design element to them. And that's InDesign for us all the time. Is everyone in your office, They do they all know InDesign? Oh, yeah. I learned it because when I had to send my application for fellowship to the AIA, you know, it's this huge 40-page Here's all the things you need to provide. Yeah, giant book. And it's incredibly graphic in its nature and in its requirements. And the only way to make that is in software like InDesign. I really got good at it as I was building this 40-page manifesto on why I'm the most important person ever. Yeah, in the world. Which is really hard to do as much as I know you think I love it. But Oh, yeah. It was difficult. But I use InDesign a lot. I use Photoshop a lot. I use SketchUp sparingly, but I do use it. And that's about it because I don't draft anymore. It makes me a little nervous if I'm being honest. That I'm a wizard in AutoCAD and we have AutoCAD in our office, but nobody uses it. We only have it because when you buy Revit, they give it to you. When I first started, I was a, I mean, I was a CAD machine because I was the only person doing it in my office where I worked an older gentleman and he was still doing stuff by hand and he'd hand it to somebody else to do, yeah. put in the computer, which is wildly inefficient. He would do that. And I became a pro at AutoCAD. I don't know if I could use it as efficiently as I used to, cause I don't, you know, I haven't used it in years. I use Revit some, but not that much either because most of my time is spent doing other stuff. Yeah. I don't get to do much of that work. That's kind of not my pay grade, even though I might really prefer it or love it because I enjoy that part of the job, figuring stuff out. Yeah. I loved drafting and, and I do miss it. I do too. I mean, that was one of my favorite things, right? About the process is doing that stuff and designing and drafting and kind of drawing things, but don't do much of that anymore. But we do use SketchUp actually in our office some. It sounds like more than you because we use it because it's so simple and intuitive. And if we have to give a client four different options, 
options. I can have each person in my office be working on a different SketchUp model that's a concept, and then we can just look at them and pick one or present them all to the client, and it just it's so much faster than trying to do that in Revit. Making alternatives in Revit is not, from my experience, not the easiest, and especially not at the conceptual stage. It gets really messy. Yeah, I can imagine. When you get further down the line and things are more solid, it's easy to, you know, well, here's an alternate to add this piece or change that piece, and that's easier to do in Revit. Well, I have a buddy of mine who is one of the owners of a pretty large firm here in town, and he's one of four people that owns an office, and I think they probably have maybe a couple hundred people, so pretty big. And he's one of the principals in charge of design. He doesn't draft either, but he uses SketchUp like almost exclusively. He'll take his model and he'll build it from a design standpoint really, really quick, and then he'll pass it off, and one of the other wizards in the office will import that model into, like, Inkscape, and they'll render it. The output isn't doesn't look like a SketchUp rendering. It looks like they go a little bit more down the photorealistic path. He and I are having drinks a couple weeks ago. They're doing a project that has kind of a residential feel, so we met so we could talk about residential detailing. He's like, no one in my office knows how to do this. It was a great meeting. There's nothing like having a meeting that you have no responsibility for and there's cocktails and and you're just kind of going oh i would do this this is how it works yeah right you're the expert and you have drinks and you have no responsibility life is good it was the best so he pulled open his laptop and we're navigating around inside sketchup and then he shows me the view and then he toggles to like pdfs that they sent the client which was the renderings of what i'm looking at in sketchup it was amazing and he goes yeah we can take the initial concept i can build a model within a day and it can go to the other wizards in the office and like two hours later we get this it's like so fast it's one of those moments when you go i need a wizard in my office yeah we render a lot out of sketchup for those things as well well we use lumion more than anything for that yeah and we really like it that's the more photorealistic way Okay, so I think we've kind of hit, like, these. those are the platforms you need to look at from a software standpoint. But one of the things that I think we need to put on, because I know this is a big deal to you, it's not such a big deal to me, because it's just not where my brain is at, but it's mobile applications. And this is an area where you know more about this than anybody I've ever met. In fact, like, the AIA used to have you travel around the country and give presentations on mobile applications that benefited architects. Yeah, I used to do that a lot. I used to be the app man. I would go all over the place, even up in Canada, eh, to... Give a few few talks there about mobile applications. I know you literally could tell me about 50. Can you just tell me about three? What are your three favorites? I could tell you about 600. You know, at one point I had 600 apps on my iPad. It's ridiculous. Well, I just go through and have to, you know, look at them and see what's what and what. I don't use that many. You're right. I might use about 30. My top three probably for the office work. Yes. My favorite is an app called Wonderlist, and it's really a task management application. But the best thing about it is that it syncs across all platforms. It works on my phone, it works on my iPad, and it works on my desktop. So if I type a reminder or a task into any of those, it shows up across all the other ones. And you can break things down into categories and folders. And you know, I have it all arranged by projects and office work, those kind of things. But the other nice thing about it is that it works across my entire office, so I can assign tasks. So if I'm out in the field and I'm on a job site and I need something to happen, I can actually type it in my phone and assign it to someone in my office. And then it's immediately, it pops up on their screen that they need to take care of this item. That's important. You and I have talked about this. We talked about this yesterday, actually. Yeah. Because until you brought up the idea that when you come up with a task and can assign it to an individual, I was saying, this is just like a piece of paper. You know, I bring my notepad with me (laughs) to the job site. 
I bring it back to me. I have paper will travel. But I also being the, you know, techno geek that I am, I really want that stuff to be that way. And I like to be able to categorize things. I mean, I carry a journal notebook around me too, but it really aggravates me because what I really want is like 17 notebooks, one for each thing, because I hate having to flip through and find different stuff on different pages and it drives me nuts. Okay, fair enough. This allows me to be very organized and OCD about my tasks. That's amazing. An architect that's OCD about, you know, record keeping. Okay, so what's number two? Well, the next one I think that would be beneficial is a plan grid, which I think everybody kind of knows about that in the industry, but I think yesterday you said you had no idea what it was. I'd never heard of it before. It's a drawing and document management app. It's a lot like Bluebeam in a way, but simpler. But you manage construction documents in it. I mean, I have contractors that sort of use it. They kind of market to contractors as well. And it's it's just a document management software that allows you to have all the drawings on the iPad, but you can modify them on the iPad as far as like making notes and those kind of things and then upload ASIs and changes and sheets. And it's just a good way to keep all the documents for a project in one place. And it's accessible from the web. So if I upload something to my plan grid account via my office, it shows up on construction side app where they can look at that stuff. So in a way, it's a, it's a nice construction management software software, document software. I'm going to have to check that one out because there's parts of that that sound very appealing to me. So, Yeah, no, I mean, it's good. And then the last one I would say, maybe I'll just put this in a category of sketching on your iPad. And there's three apps that I like to use for that, but for different purposes. Two of them are where you can sketch architecturally a little more technically because you can sketch things to scale. And one is called ArchiSketch, and it lets you draw things to scale. And the other one is called Arit Scale Sketch, and you can draw things to scale and those kind of things. And it's nice to be able to do that sometimes if you're in a client meeting or if you're making your first pitch or even if you're just sitting in the airport. And then the other one is Tayasu Sketches, which is more of an artistic thing. That's for making pretty drawings and sketches. Not so much technical, but a real drawing application. But it's got a lot of different styles and pens and water brushes and all this kind of stuff that you can make some crazy drawings with. I'm going to tell you all of this. I know that people love it. I know you love it. It's something you embrace. For the most part, I go, I would never do that. I have zero interest to sketch on my iPad. I know. I know. But I know that it's a valuable thing. So in the show notes, we'll put links to all this stuff. And, you know, you can kind of explain it further if you want. But I want to move on to physical equipment, like really, really quickly, because I'm kind of curious that maybe we'll get some comments if we bring it up as a subject. We didn't talk about it the other day, but it's plotters. Last couple offices I worked in, we had a plotter. Now in my current office, we do not have a plotter. And there are days when I hate it. No, I don't even know how you survive without it. We have a repro graphics company that's not that far away from us. So if we need some, we just send it to them and, you know, in 45 minutes it shows up. It's not that big a deal. Now, part of the reason we like it that way, it's really comes down to billing to a certain extent because Michael, when he first set this up, he didn't want to have like, and this is what we did in my last office. You'd write down project name five or whatever it is, three, 30 by 42, and we'd write it down. And then the, at the end of the month, the accountant would kind of add everything up and say, all right, well, we charge $5 a sheet and you did a total of 27 sheets. Here's the bill. But it was a bill we generated, and Michael didn't want to do that. He wanted a third-party invoice to include in our statement so that we didn't have to have a conversation about whether or not we were being flip or cavalier with how we printed stuff out. And most of the people in my office are pretty young, and they check their drawings on the monitor. They don't do a lot of printing out, certainly not at full size. Now, they'll do 11 by 17 printouts, but they don't do full size. As much as I tried there for a while when I was... When I was getting really big into it, I tried to do stuff on screen, but I just, I can't. And I also found that doing things on screen and then you print them out and there's still issues. Stuff just doesn't quite work the way you think. I like to print out stuff 
Most of the time it's 11 by 17. I don't print that much big stuff anymore, but every once in a while I still print out some large stuff. But I have it in my office. I have a plotter, and it's just a black and white plotter. It prints pretty quick. It'll kick out prints really fast. So if we have to, or if we want to, to look at something and see how it's going to fit on a sheet, if it's going to read right, those kind of things, we'll print stuff out. But the other thing I think is in the commercial markets, I don't know that my drawings actually get printed very much anymore. Yeah, you're saying that most of your guys have iPads and they just kind of pull up drawings and zoom in and out and that kind of thing. The subs still do, but they're just printing sections, not the whole set of drawings. They're printing their pieces or whatever, I should say. We don't deliver printed drawings. Yeah. We'll send somebody PDFs, and if they want to, if the contractor prints them or the client wants to print them, they'll print them. Every once in a while, we'll print client drawings, but even then, it's usually not a full set. We still have one, and it's very convenient, and from the billing standpoint from us, it's nice because I can charge for the paper. It is convenient. Well, you know what it's done? It's trained us not to work up until the last second and print something right as we need to run out the door because we don't have that luxury, so we've kind of Pavlovian responses. We've learned to not do that. That's not a bad habit, I don't think, right? I mean, I think it's kind of actually probably a good one. No, I think it's definitely a good one. So since we're on the subject of printing, I think we should talk about 3D printers, and since I don't have any practical experience with them, even though it's something that I'm I'm pretty interested in, you know, and I've actually even done the research to find out how much they cost and the materials they use and how does that work. I decided I'd reach out to fellow architect and one of my buddies, Anthony Laney at Laney LA, because they use them extensively in their practice. So here's part of that conversation. Joining me today is Anthony Laney, co-founder and partner at Laney LA, an architecture firm that was formed in 2014 that focuses on serving home and business owners in the LA and surrounding region. Hi, Anthony. Thanks for joining me. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Great to be here, Bob. Well, I appreciate you taking time out of what I know is a very busy day for you to join me on this segment of the podcast. I got to tell you, when I first thought about reaching out to you, I did a search in my Gmail account because I, I went, I know Anthony and I have talked to each other, but you know, there's so many social media platforms, I can never remember which one I've engaged with people on. And so I did a search for you in my Gmail account. And it came up with a Twitter notification from November 26th of 2011 telling okay. <laughs> me, yeah, 2011, telling me that Mr. Anthony Laney is now following you. That's <laughs> seven years ago. Can you believe that? I believe it. I've, I've, I've been following for seven years. I believe it. That is crazy to me. So anyway, the reason why that kind of really jumped out at me a little bit is because I know that your firm is still, it's pretty new. You started it in, I think, March of 2014. That's correct. Yeah, about four years old. Yeah, so you're four years old, but you and I go back seven years. <laughs> we do. <laughs> One of the things, and I'll, I'll throw out there for people who might frantically trying to search for you on Twitter, I'll put all this links and stuff in the show notes, but my perception is that you don't spend a lot of time on Twitter, though. Not too much. No, um, we we enjoy Instagram probably the most, Instagram and Snapchat, and sometimes we'll throw things out to Facebook and Twitter. Well, you know, that's how I really got sucked into your feed is your Instagram account. It's one of the more engaging ones that I follow. You know, at a certain point, there's so many people you connect with. It's hard to keep up with everything. So yep. there's a couple of accounts that really jump out in my mind, and yours is one of them. And it's probably one of the single main reasons I said, I need to get Anthony on the show to talk about tools of an architect, because you really put that sort of information on display if people are following you on your Instagram account. 
Well, thanks for saying that. I mean, the connections that we get, as I'm sure you um, experience with your own blog and social media platforms, the connections are just fantastic. And so we really do enjoy sharing content with our audience. Some are architectural, some are not. Um, and it's those serendipitous connections that come from it that make it all very much worth it. Yeah, I'm right there with you on that one. One of the things I wanted to talk to you about regarding tools of an architect is 3D printing, because that's something mm -hmm. you do a lot of. We do. So what system do you actually use? So we use the Form 2 printer from Form Labs. That is a, a resin-based printer, so it comes with tanks of liquid resin. And the models that we print take about, I would say, 8 to 20 hours to print. So often we're printing those overnight. It does require a little bit of post-production, so a little bit of sanding and a little bit of gluing. Our brand is kind of about the black and white high contrast uh, printed models. So we mm -hmm. will then spray paint them. And all of this comes from the 3D models that are that are Studio Designs and Archicad. But to answer your first question, it's it's again the Form 2 printer from Form Labs. And I know that you're big Archicad guys because again, through your Instagram feed, I know that you host meetings for the user group at your offices mm -hmm. on occasion. So yep. does the output of Archicad allow you to just kind of, I don't want to say seamlessly go into the 3D printing that you do, is there a lot of pre-production work that goes into that process? It's a great question. When we first got into 3D printing, we were using other software uh, like Rhino and SketchUp to be the middleman in between our printer and our Archicad software. We've since found a way just to print directly from Archicad. Um, you can effectively just press print. Wow. Well, you know, I've, I've done a little research on this type of technology myself and so I'm familiar with when it comes out there's a lot of structure you have to break away and you know one of the questions this is completely self-serving <laughs> is they do look great when you're when you're done with them and I do love the black and white look and I and I know that you paint them because you've said that you paint them but how do you get the outside black and keep the inside white when there's windows that's what I wanted to know. <laughs> so it's the elves. No, we, so our team uses the exacto uh, blade like every other architecture student and tapes over little areas to block out the windows. Uh, the other thing that we've done sometimes is we'll actually print um, the perfect shape that will temporarily cover those windows uh, before we spray them. Wow. This leads me, this is a great segue to the next question. It has to do with the process and how the 3D printing works with your design process. So now that you have the ability to print out these models, what do you do with them? I mean, are they things that you keep around the office to show other clients? Look at this cool thing. Is it part of your social media campaign? Do you use it in your design meetings? You know, so tell me a little bit about how you use it. Yeah, so it's all of the above. Um, early in the design process, we will print very small models, models that fit in the palm of your hand. And honestly, we haven't photographed or posted many of those models. We probably should. Uh, later on, as we approach the conclusion of the schematic design phase, uh, we will print 16th scale models. And those are the ones that fill up our bookshelves because um, you can kind of hold them in two hands. They have a nice weight to them, especially in the resin. And clients can really understand the difference between a door and a window and a mullion and a frame and um, even some site information. And so every single project, we have a white version at that 16th scale. And it's just, I, I just 
get so much personal joy out of seeing, uh, especially for a young firm, this growing library of projects. Sure. Um, we we print the um, the project, we keep them. Uh, often they they live on the desk of the responsible project manager because. When design issues come up, it's so convenient. It's even faster than orbiting an Archicad just to look down, pick up at the model, and point to a certain uh, physical condition that might need to be detailed. And often our clients request that we print a second one for them to take home. The language I use with the clients is, no, you can't have it now because this is an active design tool. And so we're going to be using this. And if you want us to print another one, we're happy to do so. Okay, so you actually answered half of the next question I had is, when I looked into this, one of the things that jumps out is, you know, the resin is not cheap. Printing these things is right. not cheap. And so right. clearly between the version that we see in your social media feeds versus the the iterations that you do internally along the way that we're not familiar with, which, you know, I get that too. So when you have a finished product, is this a cost that is baked into your fee or is it something that is passed along to the client or how do you handle that internally? Because we build a lot of models in our office, yeah. but they're, you know, they're basswood and they're museum board. And the yeah. thing that I find remarkable is we do pass along that expense to the client. You know, mm-hmm. we don't we don't do them on small projects. We only kind of do this when we're working on larger projects. And the thing that always boggles my mind is the clients paid for these and they don't want to keep them because they go, well, I love it now. But what am I going to do with it in six months? Right. Because ours are <laughs> ours right. are not a 16th inch scale. Right. They're bigger. Yeah. Yeah. So when we first got the printer, um, being conscious of costs, I think the printer costs about four thousand dollars. We did expense the client for the prints. And then one day we just had a very sharp client say, you know what, I'm, I'm paying a lot of money for your services. It just feels like you're nickel and diamond me. And that, that, that comment actually did resonate with me. I thought, you know, we, we aspire to give white glove service. I'm not going to charge my, my guest for the chocolate I put on their pillow. And so we now bake it into our fee. And uh, when I first did that, of course, I had nightmares that a client would abuse that. They just never have. Well, that's nice. I'm, I'm glad to hear that because I do think more models should be used in the creative process for what we do. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and I, I, as much as I love the digital technology, there's something to be said about looking at a physical model. And I've never seen the experience that a client has with a physical model be replicated when they're looking at a digital manifestation of what that model would be on a monitor or through VR goggles. I agree 100%. And that's why... In order to replicate that, we're so obsessed with including the human hand in the photographs of these 3D prints because it's really that tactile quality that makes them so magical. We're on the same page. We should. <laughs> we can start a club. We should do a podcast. Yeah, <laughs> that's a great idea. Okay, the next area of technology is actually really almost not technology at all. It's not the reason why I added this to the list, but there is a technological component to it. So one of my most favorite things that you do, which sounds so stalker, I'm, I'm almost embarrassed to admit it, is when you do kind of like the State of the Union, which I know is a big one. Like I think you just recently did one and you even made a comment about, hey, we used to do these once a year, but now we do them quarterly. But it's That's a... Right. It's a so in case the people haven't found the genius that is your Instagram feed, <laughs> you will have in your office, you have these projectors that project on an opposite huge blank white wall and you get 
basically like a projector screen that's like 20 feet wide. Mm-hmm. And, and I'll let you clarify some of the, the misspeaks that I have going along. But what will happen is there'll be all these kind of fast run videos of you or somebody else standing up in front with a clicker and things are moving and graphics are popping up and they're giving a presentation to your staff, like to their coworkers. And I love it because it speaks about the culture of your firm, which is something that I, you know, this is part of what I want to get into. So let's back up and just talk about the technological aspects of it. So you know the system I'm talking about, the two projectors. So walk us through what that is. We last year bought two Optima 4K projectors. And for those who want to look it up, it's the UHD60. Um, Those are mounted high on the ceiling opposite a wall. And yes, the projection, they, they work in unison. And so combined the projection walls about 20 feet wide and 10 feet tall. Hey, I I have a pretty good sense of scale, right? You do. Yes. I should do this for a living. (laughs) You nailed it. And, and so our office is, uh, 21 feet wide, but very, very deep. And, and so it affords this little narrow kind of amphitheater setup where everyone sits and watches a presentation on the wall. And that could be as simple as a movie or as complex as a, a very nuanced and detailed keynote presentation. And what's fun about it is on a white wall, uh, we often design it so that you don't see the frame of the 10 foot by 20 foot screen. In other words, if your keynote file has a black background and all you see is white text, it looks delightfully like the text is just showing up on the wall. And so that's, that's fun. And um, because these are two projectors, uh, the presenter can often stand right in the middle and miraculously appear not to cast a shadow. And so all of those things add up to an experience that I think is, is fun and unique, and we certainly leverage it on a weekly basis. I will agree that they look terrific. I mean, it's one of the things that I look at and I, I want to go, man, I want to be in that office with that stuff going on because it's not just you that stands up there and gives these amazing presentations. That's right. So one of our core values is what we call the rookie's advantage. Um, and what we mean by that is we want to be lifelong learners. We, we want to be just folks who embrace a radically steep learning curve. And so um, for four years, ever since we started the firm, even when we were a firm of just four people in my garage, every Monday morning I would give basically a, a very short lecture on the book that I read that week. And uh, I did that for two years. And coming up on on year three, uh, I started sharing that responsibility. Um, Everyone else started sharing um, either a book that they read or something that they learned from a podcast, or perhaps they just came back from a trip and they just wanted to do a show and tell. And so that that was fun. And and that's evolved over time. And now we have this whole library, four years worth of just prioritizing Monday morning, first thing, eight o'clock. Like, how do you inspire? And for us, it's just sharing what we've learned. Um, and so now it's, it's voluntary. Uh, my job as a firm owner is to curate um, who the volunteers are, to help unblock them if they get stuck on their research. Um, sometimes we will do thematic sessions where for a month we'll focus on a particular uh, type of presentation. Other times it'll just be like popcorn, whatever inspires someone. Other times it'll involve lots and lots of uh, the, the staff members or other times they'll team up. But 
Most often, somebody says, hey, I want to take this coming up Monday, and they tell me what their topic is. I approve it, and it's something that might be architectural, might be just cultural, might be artistic, might be just personal. But if they can have practice building a keynote, giving a public speech, being clear and concise with their language, but most importantly, inspiring to a small audience, that's the skill set that we use with our clients. And so really we discovered it's this powerful practice tool for visual communication, for verbal communication, and also educating all of us. We call it the collective conscious. So if I know what you know, and you know what I know, we know where to go when we uh, have our next challenge. So I know I was probably long-winded there, but I'm passionate <laughs> about our Monday morning talks. No, I we love call it. it team, team talks. Well, you actually hit, again, you kind of got to the point because the thing that I love most about it, other than the fact that it looks great, is that you're training your younger staff to get used to standing up. I mean, it, it's we're, we do it in school, right? We all know yeah. how the jury process works in school, but I got to tell you, I've sat in so many juries that I don't remember how it was when I was in school because, you know, it was a panic moment. And, and I like <laughs> and I like to think I'm pretty good standing up in front of a room of people and just talking. But when I go back to schools now, it's the communication skills seem to be the one area where people are lacking. And when I talk mm-hmm. to students, I say, do you realize that when you present your work to me, it's not really about the work. The learning experience for you at this moment is not to see whether or not I like your project. This is your opportunity to stand up in front of people and articulate your ideas and your concept and walk us through a presentation. That's the skill set that you're learning. And most of them don't ever realize that. And they come out of school, and it's not really a skill that they've developed as well as they really need to. And I see it happening in your office, and I just love the fact that you do it. I can't tell you what a big deal that is for me. I was that student, Bob, that did not feel confident in my presentation skills. And so to create a safe environment for what tends to be a younger designer uh, to practice that skill and to do it using content that they're passionate about, I just think that's such a good platform. I agree. And so I want to commend you on doing that. But back to the tools of the architect side of it. So how do how are these presentations made? I mean, for me, I think about it and I go, so what role does having dual projectors do? Does that change the software that you use? Is it cuz for the people who haven't seen it, these things are elaborate. There's like there's still shots and there's movies within the still shots and there's I mean, a, you guys put a lot of work into these presentations and it shows. And so I I want to talk a little bit about the software that you use to create these presentations? Sure. So we use Keynote. It's it's the Macintosh version of PowerPoint. And we just set our custom slide size. It's, it's a double 4K. So it's 3840 by uh, 1200. And, you know, if sometimes it is just simple white text and a black background, and we just know that'll still look good. You're right. Other times we create custom graphics and embedded animations and videos just to try to impress our fellow coworker and to inspire them. Uh, It does take work. Uh, It's not for everyone, but again, we, it's a fun way to start the Monday. Well, do you use that system for client meetings very often? We do for, I would say for most of the client meetings, we have a big flat screen TV and we use Apple airplay to spin live 3d models that we just can't beat. But what will be fun is 
if they walk in, they might see their name on the wall and it'll say so-and-so client kickoff meeting. Or uh, sometimes it'll just say, you know, it's, it's Wednesday. Yeah, it'll just, it'll just say some phrase on the wall that is inspiring. The, the most delight we've gotten out of a client is we've actually mapped our keynote to real scale on the wall such that when we knew a client was going to say, hey, um, how tall are my, is my ceiling on this floor? We would actually have a, an animation of an arrow climbing up the wall and hitting the ceiling at the right height because we have high ceilings in our studio. So we could, we could show them what a 13-foot ceiling looks like by just drawing a line on the wall. And so that was fun. I would like to do more things like that. I'm going to slide another tool in here. It wasn't on my list to talk with you about, but I kind of want to get into it now that I've been thinking about it. I think the office as a thing is a tool of an architect. Mm -hmm. And you really seem to use your space in a way that belies the fact that you have 13 people working in the space. You know, Mm -hmm. you're beyond the small boutique firm. So you're large enough to have resources to do some pretty amazing things, but you're not so big that everybody doesn't know what everybody else is doing. And this is especially true in your office because it's one big giant open room and everybody sits at like a giant communal table now, of course, it's made up of stand-sit tables, so somebody might be sitting and some people might be standing, and you know, you got, right. a little, you got a little you know, horizontal chaos that could be going on sometimes. <laughs> That's right. Let's talk about your office as a, as a tool, because I would also imagine that in addition to your social media feed, that it's a tool you use to help attract and retain your employees to a certain extent, because it sends off a, it's a cool vibe, like this is a cool place to be. That's right, and, and I would only... I would only like, uh, I agree with that a hundred percent. The only kind of twist I want to put is yes, I think it attracts a certain type of designer. Um, we've, we've had people who, um, can respectfully say, you know what, this whole open office, hyper collaboration, candid critique, that's, that's not what I've come from and that's not what I'm looking for. And, and I think there's a better firm for them, but for us, if someone, What's so important to us about our social media is we want to give people an accurate picture of who we are because if somebody has, you know, a thirst for learning and they're they're excited to see how uh, architecture and the architecture process can like impact a wider audience uh, in a collaborative way, those are the sort of people that we want to attract. And so, yes, we all sit together. My desk is just one of the many desks that are out on the floor. We don't have a conference room, so everyone hears every client meeting, um, and that forces us um, by design to embrace a measure of transparency that uh, I haven't experienced in other firms, and I think is an empowering thing, especially for a young designer to experience. Yeah, I agree with that. But one of these days, you know what I want you to do? And if you do this, I'm going to go, aw, he did that for me, is... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> All the images of your office are inwardly focused. I've never seen like the door that gets in. Like I don't even know if you have any windows. I'm going to I'm going to do that for you. So the real reason <laughs> here here I'm breaking the news is that the inside looks a lot better than the outside. But just think think of Bob when you see our next post, which is the outside of our office. Okay, well I'll leave it at that and I'll say I'm looking All forward right. to seeing that. All right, Anthony, I can't tell you how great it was for you to uh, come on the podcast with us today. And answer some of these questions that have been burning a hole in my brain to talk about the tools of an architect. Thanks, Bob. It was certainly a privilege to be part of your podcast. I I am so appreciative of everything that you're doing for our profession. Well, thanks. And I can't wait for the next time or the first time, really, that we actually get to sit down and uh, 
maybe have a drink together. Let's do it soon. All right. Thanks, Anthony. Thanks. So there's some additional tools of an architect that I think we can kind of hit on. And they're not necessarily specific or intrinsic to being an architect. But if this is my list of this is what I really want or this is what I think you need to really be good at your job, high on that list is a big, giant desk. (laughs) I've had a big, giant desk for the last, I don't know, say 20 years. So the space I have now is six foot by about 12 foot. I basically have both sides of a U-shaped workstation. And I have bloated out to literally use the whole thing. I have like, here's my computer area. Here's where I lay out my drawings and do my red lines and my sketch. Over here's where all my binders are. And in my brain, I think, well, I can't do my job if I only had half of this much space. And while there's some truth to that, even in Anthony's office, Anthony Laney, they all work on single desks. They're like, here's your three foot by five foot desk. This is yours. And half it's computer. And I go, man, I can't make that work. I think the the younger folks, they don't have that stuff to spread out. Like you were talking about earlier, it's all just on the computer. So they don't really have the paper that they need to lay out. Because I'm with you. My desk is big as well. You know, and I've got stuff all over it, papers and brochures and all this other kind of stuff that I need to do my job, at least at some point during the week. I mean, I may not access all of that stuff every day, but it's there where I can get to it. Sure. Now, granted, I don't have binders. I'm not that old. The rest of it, I agree with. But you know, I need some space. There's a difference, though, because if I just look at my desk, and part of the reason I have a big desk is because I do everything. And I don't mean like no one else does anything. I mean, I cover every project and facet of work scope on a myriad of different projects. Like, I'll say Landon, who sits next to me. He's working on one job right now. And he drafts most of the time, so he's got layout space for the drawings associated with that one job. And he's got his computer. I've got proposals I've got written out. I've got design work that I'm doing. I've got CA work. I've got management stuff. I've got billing paperwork that's sitting out. I have a lot more stuff on my table because I've got a lot more stuff on my table. I mean, that makes sense. I agree. The funny thing to me about that whole desk thing, though, is, you know, some of the like larger corporate offices, they have like the hot desk thing that they do now. What is that? I went to Tour One in Houston, and that's kind of their new setup. And it's essentially you don't have a desk. It's like an open free-for-all. So they've got all these workstations set up, and you just come in and sit down wherever you want that day, and you log in, and you do your work. Oh, no way. We couldn't do it. I'd be like, that is nuts. I'm going to have to carry around a box of all my stuff every day I come in. But that's sort of a trend. It's strange to me that that's in architecture firms. I don't know what that is in practice, right? Maybe it's that the project manager, that's his desk. We're not sitting there. We know it's his, but everybody else shifts around. Or if it's just you say that, but everybody still comes to the same desk, and it's just a way to keep junk off of people's desks. Maybe that's what it is, because I'll tell you, I hate everything about that. And that's just another way of saying, don't bring any of your crap up here. I mean, I think so, I guess. Or maybe it's the fact that, you know, the turnover is so high or something. I think there's some benefit to that, but I agree with you. It seems really kind of strange to think about I could just go sit wherever I wanted to every day. I don't like it. We're going to table this conversation because we could have architecture office chat in another episode. This is true. There's one more thing that I want to make sure that we get on the list because we're getting to the end of the show. Smartphones. I still have a guy that I'm good friends with. He's about maybe he's six or seven years older than I am. I think he had a flip phone until about a year ago. And I look at this guy and he's a great designer. He's good at everything that he does. But he had a flip phone and I thought, I don't think I could do my job without my smartphone. I use it as a camera. I use it for email. There's so many things that I use my phone for beyond just taking a phone call. Now, there's pros and cons with that because it kind of tethers me to work all the time because I always have my phone nearby. Yeah. But the upside is 
because I have my phone nearby, I also have all the information I need pretty much at my fingertips whenever and wherever. Yeah, again, like you say, there's some pluses and minuses to that. Part of me hates it because I'm always available. Granted, I don't have many clients that call me because honestly, 90% of my smartphone usage is not phone. 10% of the time, I'm actually using it as a phone. I use it for a bunch of other stuff. It's time for us to humanize us as people. So, you know, we have the In My Spare Time segment, which we're not doing one of those today. We're going to do a hypothetical. Hypothetical. Yeah, is that the, we need a jingle. I know, right? Hypothetical. There you go. Hype, hype, hypothetical. It's, it's, it's hype, baby, hype, baby, one, two, three, four, hype, baby, hype, baby, one, two, three. It's called a hypothetical. <laughs> I'm going to ice, I'm going to, I'm going to isolate that. Okay. Here's the hypothetical. Let's set the time travel clock back a few decades to when you and I were both still students looking to build our resumes and find summer employment. So the question to you, this hypothetical question today is, would Andrew Hawkins, the summer intern, take a job at an office of a famous architect for free? I would have to say no conditionally. (laughs) (laughs) I'd have to say that's a definite maybe not. Right now, I would say no, right? At this point in my career, I would say no, you should never, ever do that. I tell the, the young people that work in my office, they should never do that because it's a complete devaluation of your knowledge, effort, existence as a human being to work for free. I will put that with a caveat. If we're going back then, several decades ago, when I was that age, and if it was only like a summer, I might have considered it just to have that opportunity and be able to put that on my resume. Right. At that time, I still would have not been happy about it, but now I definitely don't think that is something that should be done in the profession at all. It's a terrible terrible business practice. I will say that, so when I came up with this question, at first I thought, this is a great question. And my position is, no, I would never do that because not only do I think that that says something about me, a person who's willing to work for no pay, it also, in my mind, says something about the employer who would allow someone to work to their benefit with no pay. Yeah, who wants you to work for free. That's right. So that I was like, this is an easy one. And I thought, well, maybe it's too easy. Maybe I should reevaluate. How could I get to it? Why, yes, I would do that. And there was only one way I could get to yes. And that was, let's say if it was Renzo Piano. Like if I actually got to work with Renzo Piano or I got to, you know, like a really good position to where I could actually be a part of it and see what was happening on and actually learn from the people instead of being down in the model shop, then I would say it's less of a job and more of a learning experience. And I wouldn't view it as I'm working for free. I'd look at it as I'm paying to get an education from this establishment. I get to be Renzo's attache for three months. (laughs) (laughs) For you, you'd be his valet. I get to follow him around and like... And put his cape on. Exactly. Hand him his briefcase. (laughs) I would agree. I think it's still some extent, though, if my desk was in his office and I got to see all that and hear all that, even if I was never allowed to speak, I could definitely glean some knowledge from that process. Can you imagine if they came to me and they said, all right, Mr. Borson, we're going to offer you this position in Renzo's private office where you get to see and be a part of everything that he does, but you can't say a word. (laughs) I go, I'm out. I'm out. I can't do it. You'd go, uh, hard pass. I can't do it. Yeah, there's no way. I can't do it. I'm out. (laughs) It would never happen. You could not talk. That's so hysterical. That's how you get there, right? That's the only way I could get to a, yes, this is the one wildly unrealistic situation or scenario where I could ever get to the point where I would take a job at an office 
where I thought I was doing, I was contributing to a process and an end product for no pay. It's the only way I got to yes. But I was going to say, I still think that the whole process and principle of, of having interns and stuff work for free is just one of the worst things in the profession. It's garbage and it's shameful behavior. And I think as an industry, we need to figure out how we can shut it down. It just devalues our youth, you know, the people that are coming up into the profession. All right. So we agree. Don't do it. Okay. So I'm going to call it. Thank you for being with Andrew and me for episode 15, Tools of an Architect. This is a fun episode, and I'd like to send out an extra thank you to Anthony Laney for joining in on this tool party. Speaking of parties, let's keep this one going. So if you would please take the next 30 seconds out of your day and head over to iTunes, I would really appreciate it if you would leave us a five-star Governor's Cup rating if you haven't already. You know, keep trying. Give us as many as you want. It really does make a difference, and I will personally make a karma deposit in your name at Bob's Caribbean Bank of Awesomeness. Be sure to visit the original lifeofanarchitect.com for show notes, links, info, and photos from this episode, as this post will have all sorts of need-to-know links based on the items we've covered today. Thanks so much for listening. Let's keep it together. Take care, everybody.